is Freddie Gray, Deputy Editor of The Spectator, a weekly British magazine on politics, culture, and current affairs. He's also the editor of The Spectator U.S. edition and the presenter of the Americano podcast. I spoke to Freddie Gray by phone on March 24, 2020. Welcome, Freddie Gray. Hello, Cynthia. It's very good to be with you. Thank you so much for joining the show. And first, please tell us, where are you and how are you faring amid the coronavirus? Uh, well, I am well. Uh, my family is well. We are currently ensconced on the Isle of Wight, which some of your listeners may know is uh, a small island off the bottom of England, uh, off Portsmouth. Um, and uh, we're doing fine. We decided to leave London because it was all getting a bit crazy and we knew there was a shutdown coming and our house is very small. And we have three very rambunctious children, so uh, it was good to get out of London. But the problem is coming down here is that um, the villagers, I think, think we are bringing the plague from London. <laughs> so we may end up getting lynched. <laughs> well, I certainly hope not. Now, the big story, the big story before the coronavirus was, of course, Brexit uh, coming out of the UK. And I'm just curious. Um, is the coronavirus a bigger challenge for your prime minister and your country? I, I think almost certainly. I'd, I'd say one of the small mercies of the coronavirus is that it makes us realise how silly uh, a lot of the t disputes over Brexit were. Um, I mean, this is clearly a bigger um, challenge. It's a bigger challenge for the government um, than anything we've faced uh, possibly since the Second World War. That's what a lot of people are saying, but I think it's true. Um, and I think that we've, we, in terms of the, the way people are responding to coronavirus, it's quite interesting to see uh, that many of the, the same sort of rows are playing out, uh, but we've just switched the language from talking about Brexit to talking about coronavirus, and particularly in regards to the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, uh, who I'm a fairly keen supporter of. I think he's doing a good job. Um, I think it's very interesting to see that the, exactly the same language is being used to hit towards him that was used about Brexit uh, now that we're dealing with coronavirus, which is he's a gambler, he's um, playing with our lives, he's taking risks with our futures, um, and it's almost as though we've, sort of, we've transposed all the cultural wars that we had over Brexit and we've just put them onto coronavirus, which is slightly depressing, but, uh, but true. There has been, though, a rift between... United States President Donald Trump and the Prime Minister Boris Johnson. Um, it's been played out a little bit in the papers recently. There was a, f a phone call that apparently went south quite quickly. And of course, the approach to the pandemic has been quite different between the two leaders. Is there any reason to think that the rift between the United States and the UK will push England closer towards the EU and perhaps change the dynamic of, of the negotiation of Bre Brexit? I think there's some hope uh, of that among uh, Europhiles in Britain. I'm, I'm not sure uh, that there is. I mean, I can tell you something, uh, quite an interesting development that's happened in the last few days is that the uh, government, like the American, the British government, like the American government, is increasingly frustrated with Chinese disinformation about um, the virus. And this has called into question our contract with Huawei, which is the Chinese telecoms giant that was the cause of the row between uh, Donald Trump and Boris Johnson a few weeks ago. Um, Huawei is going to do our 4G internet uh, infrastructure. 
and Trump didn't want China to do that for obvious security reasons. Uh, but the government pushed ahead with it, the British government pushed ahead with it, and this irritated Trump a lot. And Boris stood up to him, and they had a bit of a row. Now, the talk at the moment among security people is that actually there's a new opportunity to ditch Huawei and re-establish good relationships with the Trump administration. So that's an interesting dynamic. And, I mean, the thing about coronavirus is it throws everything into flux, and it's hard to tell what's going to happen. What about the markets? I mean, do you think the central bank is going to play any role in rescuing the U.K.? Throwing money into well, the Well, it's hands. extraordinary. I mean, the, the sort of um, the joke at the moment is that, uh, you know, we avoided uh, a full-on socialist government in December when we elected Boris Johnson over Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, but now, because of coronavirus, we've effectively got full state control of uh, lots of large parts of the <laughs> private sector. I mean, right. is, is, is um, vowing to uh, pay 80% of, um, up to 80% of salaries of workers. Um, I mean, this is an extraordinary shift. I suppose the, the comfort for us, those of us who aren't socialists, um, is that uh, at least we think a Boris Johnson government will try and go back to the way things were before coronavirus as soon as possible, uh, BC, as we say, uh, and whereas we wouldn't necessarily have that comfort with the Jeremy Corbyn administration. Well, I think that's, it really raises an interesting question. It's like, what is conservatism? I mean, in, in response, what is a conservative response to a pandemic, I guess is what I'm asking. I mean, is what the United States and the UK and the various you know governments around the world doing, would you consider any of them to be more conservative than others? Well, I think it's, that's a really interesting question. I mean, I think conservatism at the moment is a, is a strange, eclectic mix of different philosophies. And you see these sort of coming apart uh, under the pressure of the coronavirus. Um, I mean, a lot of uh, more sort of traditional conservatives are very much uh, you know, behind the shut everything down. We need to, um, uh, you know, wartime mobilization of the state, wartime mobilization of industry, those sorts of things. You hear that coming from conservative voices, which is very odd. Um, but... Uh, that's none of this happening. And then, you, and then the other end, you have the sort of, I suppose, free market uh, enthusiasts who are now saying, I'd say the Trump administration seems to be on this side of the coin at the moment, which is, you know, the cure can't be worse than the disease. Uh, we cannot shut down the global economy. Um, and I think it's interesting that, yeah, conservatism, you know, what are we trying to conserve here? Are we trying to conserve lives? Are we trying to conserve the global economy? It's a very difficult dilemma. Uh, and I think governments, particularly governments on the right, are sort of feeling their way awkwardly around what, sh- what the right solution should be. Now, in the United States, of course, there's an election in 2020, and some believe that partisan politics is getting in the way of an appropriate response by the United States government. In England, you don't have a general election, I believe, until 2024. So what are the, are the labor leaders uh, who, are, who are, you know, coming after um, Jeremy Corbyn, are, are they standing behind Boris Johnson right now because there's, there's not an election on the line, or are they in opposition to what he's trying to well, do? Well, at the moment, they're playing it. The, the different contenders for the leadership are playing it differently. Um, Keir Starmer, the, the overwhelming favorite now to be the next Labour, Labour leader, has played uh, quite a sort of sensible game, I'd say. He's supported the government in as much as he can, but he's also raised concerns about, there's been a lot of concern about the government's supposed approach to herd immunity. I think some of that was, to use a Trumpy phrase, 
fake news um, in the sense that the government was never pursuing herd immunity. They, they simply said that the, the policy had to take into account that herd immunity was the end goal. So it was the end goal for coronavirus is that everybody or as many people as possible have herd immunity from coronavirus. They weren't saying we're just going to you know, throw, this virus, throw everyone out to the wolves and um, only the fittest will survive. But uh, Keir Starmer, on the whole, has been fairly supportive of the government. And in fact, there has been a bit of a talk of a, a, the possibility of a wartime cabinet, which would mean um, different people from different parties are put in charge of the government. And so there's a sort of united front across parties while we get over this uh, crisis. I don't think that's going to happen. Um, but it is odd that there's this sort of Labour leadership contest going on while this coronavirus is, is happening because Labour have had a bit of a crisis of identity and their leadership contest has got quite boring to the public. Um, and the funny <laughs> thing is, is that nobody was interested uh, in the Labour leadership before coronavirus and now nobody's really even aware that it's happening at all. <laughs> well, now what about the monarchy? There, of course, there's the story pre-corona was, um, you know, um, the prince and the princess moving out and going Harry to Can- and Harry and Meghan going to Canada and relinquishing some of the responsibilities and privileges of the monarchy. What's the story now? Are people do people cling to the Queen and Buckingham Palace in a time of crisis, or are they resentful? Um, that, well, that- there's, there's a little bit of blissful relief that we don't have to pretend to care about Harry and Meghan anymore. <laughs> But I think in terms of the Queen, yes, there was some sort of agitation that the Queen must make a statement. You know, the country is looking to her um, at the moment. And she did release a statement. But, of course, she's quite an old lady herself, uh, and therefore there are concerns about her exposure to the virus. Um, But uh, I think at the moment she's in Sandrium, and uh, we will see if she does one of her televised statements in the coming days. But I think uh, British people seem to be quite... Satisfied. I mean, there was obviously there's a lot, lot of concern about the government's response, but the government is now doing these regular five o'clock, in fact, one of them's just started, five o'clock briefings on uh, what's going on in the country and what the response is going to be. And at the moment, that seems to be working as a sort of keeping the nation informed as to what's happening. One industry that's doing quite well amid the coronavirus is the um, alcohol business. I mean, Americans are drinking... Um, a lot of beer and wine and spirits. And I happened to notice in an interview you did in January for your birthday, you said that you had given up drinking until April. And I'm wondering if the coronavirus has changed that at all. (laughs) Uh, You've busted me. I have failed. I have taken to the bottle while working from home like a tragic figure in a Victorian novel. I'm so glad. Uh, No. Seems like that's what you should do as a Brit. <laughs> I have, uh, I'm afraid, yes, I have. I've, I, I gave up till, um, I went on a trip to America in mid-February, and I thought I'd give myself a break there, and then I kind of sort of slightly let it go. But uh, I, need, I need to get back on the wagon, because um, staying at home, you have, to, you have to be very strict with yourself, I think. No drinks before a certain time in the evening. Um, otherwise, it can all go to pot quite quickly. Now, in the United States, the digital divide is is obviously um, in full view. People who have internet are faring better during this pandemic than people who are disconnected. 
where you are in the islands off of England, do you have full internet connection and can your children be taught remotely? Uh, they can be. In fact, uh, they've just finished uh, a remote art class. Um, so, yes, in fact, we, I was talking with my children at lunch today about what we'd do if there, if there wasn't an internet and they couldn't even conceive of something. So <laughs> I think the digital divide is getting worse and worse. What about the the healthcare system? We always hear about your healthcare system. How is it holding up in response to the pandemic? Well, there are concerns that London is going to is already feeling a bit of uh, tightness. They're saying and that um, uh, there's a bit of strain on services in London, which is obviously a huge city. And if the infection rates, I saw that Governor Cuomo is saying that uh, the oh, sorry, Bricks actually, your your health uh, lady is saying that. Um, the infection rate in New York might be as high as 28%. We think it might be even higher in London if we actually had accurate testing. So there is a big concern that London hospitals will be overwhelmed. Um, the NHS is a sort of national religion here. We kind of venerate it as, 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 a, sort of, as, a, as a holy institution. Um, and I think there's a lot of sort of love and affection for everyone who works for the NHS and a lot of admiration for their bravery at the moment. Um, the worry is that we so revere the NHS that we aren't willing to look at the big problems it has and that these might be exposed in the coming weeks because there are a lot of things that, uh, things like ventilators and things that um, the government really should, or the health department really should have got a lot more of quicker uh, and we don't seem to have done that. Other than the fact that you have to be you know, remote, what are the biggest challenges for journalists like yourself trying to keep the government accountable during a crisis and keep the population informed. Um, what, what are what are your biggest challenges? Well, I wish I was one of these important journalists that holds the government to account, but, but I don't. I'm afraid. I think the the, the biggest challenge for me is um, video conferencing. Uh, I find that unbearable. <laughs> uh, the, 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 I suppose for, for, for proper journalists who go out and um, you know break stories and things like that. Uh, they have actually been identified as key workers by the government, so they are allowed to uh, go about their work as normal, and they will be for the foreseeable. But not you. <laughs> well, I just think I know. Apparently, I think I could claim it, but I think I would, even I would feel too much of a fraud doing that. <laughs> <laughs> well, Freddie Gray, thank you so much for joining us, and I'd love to stay in touch. Um, hope to talk to you again sometime soon. Thanks, Cynthia. Great pleasure. Take care.